who wants more of Christ? You want more of Christ in your life? I, 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 of course we're going to answer yes. If, if we know anything about the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, we're always going to answer yes, right? But there's things that do stop us from that. And this morning's message on reputation, especially from, I think, of the tradition that I've been a part of for a very long time, this church is it's a Christian Reformed church. It's the name of the denomination. Uh, it's, it's important, but it's not really important for our purposes this morning. But that tradition that we come from, um, reputation has been a big thing for a very long time. It's been, our denomination's been around for 150 years, and I remember growing up, and there were times when the idea of having your reputation governed a lot of stuff. And my guess is that although it may look different now, it's probably still the same in some ways. That your reputation matters to you, right? How many of you want a really cruddy reputation? We don't want one. We, we want a good reputation, right? You want people to look at you and when they see you, have some regard for you, right? You want to feel like uh, when people look at you, they think you're, you're honest, right? That's a good reputation to have. They're, they're a person that is honest, speaks truth. That they're a person of integrity. We want people to look at us and think, wow, that, that's a person of integrity, Maybe we want people to look at us and say, wow, they're really hot. You know, we want that sort of reputation. I know that governs Doug Jaritzma's life. I mean, he, he's always looking for that hotness factor. That's how he wants people to look at it. We, in various ways, at various times, um, we want people to see us a certain way. And that governs how we live. It governs the behavior in our life. And that's why I think this morning's message and breakthrough is a really important message. I think it's important for us to hear how much of a barrier reputation is to us experiencing the fullness of God's love. And how our concern with our reputation can hinder us from so many of the amazing blessings that God holds out and says, here, worry about me, and this is yours. We miss that because we're too concerned about how people see us. As we think about this this morning from God's word, let's pray for his blessing on our time and his wisdom in our thoughts as we hear from him. Praise you, God, for being able to worship you and glorify you. We praise you that you give us the challenge and the truth of your word that reminds us in our story this morning from the book of Luke that reputation is important only as long as it is our standing before you. And we pray, Father, that you move in our hearts and in our minds to consider those things which stop us from getting more of you from missing out on the blessings that you have for us, on, on, Lord, just getting less. 
We consider those things and through the power of your spirit that you will break through to new places in our lives, in our hearts, where we are governed in a different way by the gratitude that we have, the thankfulness that we have for what you have done in our lives. Father, you are the one who does this work, and we pray that you do it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. From the book of Luke, there are Bibles in your pews in front of you if you'd like to keep that open, Um, but certainly we are uh, having it on the screen. It's about one-third maybe of the way from the back, one-quarter or so from the back of your scriptures. Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, as I read this, I want you to understand some things right off the get-go. This is the Jewish society of this time and in this place 2,000 years ago in what we now know as Israel-Palestine area, is governed by a patriarchal society, masculine-governed society. Women don't have near the standing that we know in our culture today. So when we read about a woman engaging with leaders, it's actually a huge deal. This woman would not have standing, would not have position, would not be welcomed into context where she would engage with leaders really at all, especially because of the reputation that she carries. We don't know the specifics of it, we just know it is a sinful one. Not sure, we could extrapolate and think about that, but we're not really sure. We just know that she carries a reputation in the community. So when we see this woman engaging with the Pharisees and with Jesus, we need to understand how countercultural that was to the time and the place that we're talking about. This is a big deal. This isn't just one of those things that it's like a minor faux pas. This is way over the line. Okay? So as we read that, think, uh, think of that. As she stood behind his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with his tears. Now, again, I want to just stop for a moment because I think it's important for us to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about feet at the time of Jesus. Remember, no closed-toe shoes. Well, there was, but there wasn't many. They were very, very expensive, very, very limited in who they would go to. And so you had sandals on, and the the roads were not cared for there, were not well maintained. Although Rome was here, this Rome had not brought their whole Roman road system, so things were rocky paths. So you can imagine walking in sandals on rocking paths. Uh, rocky paths, you got a lot of cuts. You also had animals walking these rocky paths and leaving behind things that animals did, which you would eventually step in. So you can also imagine what these feet were like. So you would, and pedicures, I know, you know, for Debbie, pedicures are a big deal. They didn't have them. No pedicures. So you're not getting that. You're not, so you're talking about really stinky, ugly, pretty gross things when you're talking about feet. And that's why the expectation was when you come to the home of somebody, your feet got washed. 
But we know in this story that didn't happen until the woman came. So for her to cry tears, be close enough to cry tears, and then to use her hair to clean the feet of Jesus, think about that. Pretty big deal. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, I want to stop again for a minute because I need to talk about the meal. Some things we wonder about the meal, at least I wonder about them as I read the text. I wonder how this all worked because we think of like a meal, right? We got a table. Table's usually about this high, right? You got chairs around it at your kitchen table. You sit there. They, that was not the tradition of eating in this community. We hear what Jesus did what at the table? He reclined. And now we're thinking lazy boy, which is where half of you are going to be this afternoon watching football, right? Kick your feet up, pull the lever, lay back, and it's easy, easy life. Different here. What we're talking about when we talk about a reclining at the table is imagine a plank here, or maybe just a plank here that was a foot off the ground at most, if even that, could be just straight on the ground, a place to hold the food and the drink that were being eaten, and you would recline on on pillows or other soft garments or blankets on the floor like this. So you had the table that would be here in front of you, and around that table you would have people reclining very similar to this. And that's how you would eat. Now think about this. How would you engage in conversation around the table, right? I mean, am I talking to the person over here? Probably not a lot. I mean, I'd probably pull a muscle if I'm talking over here. But if I'm talking forward, and this person is leaning the other way than I am, we're face to face. And so we're having a conversation. So when we hear the Pharisee, what did he do? He said to himself, he said to himself, so sort of like this. If only this guy would know what he was like, then he wouldn't have eating with him. Mumbling almost to himself because what? Jesus hears him and he replies, where is the Pharisee sitting in relation to Jesus? Right next to him. Jesus heard the mumblings of words spoken under the breath of the Pharisees, of the Pharisee. He can hear his words and so he replies to them and he can engage. Now, the other question that I ask is this. How in the world did the woman get in there? Do you wonder that ever? This is a patriarchal society. We already talked about that. There's no way that the Pharisee goes up to Jesus and he says, hey, come to my lunch today. And oh yeah, sinful, evil woman over there. I'd like you to come to my lunch as well. You're welcome into my home. That's not happening. So how did it work? Well, I can imagine. I can wonder. And so I did. Here's what I think happened. I think it looked like this. Jesus comes into the town where he is teaching and meets the Pharisee. And the Pharisee sees him. He knows who Jesus is. And he thinks, wow, this guy is a popular new young teacher. So I'm 
going to make myself look good. Hey, Jesus. Yeah, I'm having a nice lunch at my house today. There's going to be lots of people there, all the important people of the town. Do you want to come and hang out with us and I'll make the best food and I'll put all my best stuff out and we'll hang out and we'll talk and I'll learn from you? This is like one of those things where by inviting Jesus into his home, the Pharisee's doing a little bit of this in the community. He's basically saying, ha, I'm the sort of person that can invite this popular person to my home. And they come. Check that out. So there's enough people at this gathering because the whole town hears the invitation. The whole town knows that there's going to be lots of food, lots of people around the table. It's going to be a full house. That's a real easy place for someone to sneak into. It's easy for in the crowd, all of a sudden, a sinful woman. Oh, sure, there might be whispers as she squeezes past with her jar of perfume. As she moves towards the feet of Jesus, sure, there might be whispers. Oh, look who's here. She shouldn't be here. What she thinks she's doing. But it's easy to do. Why? Because there's so many people there. It seems to make sense that this woman could show up there because there's a whole crowd of people around Jesus. Okay? So that's your picture. Then we engage the rest of the story. Jesus answered him so he can hear Simon the Pharisee speaking. Simon, I have something to tell you. You can imagine the Pharisee going, Ooh, ha, Jesus is going to tell me something. He's going to tell me how awesome I am. He's going to tell me how great this food is. He's going to tell me how wonderful my hospitality is. Tell me, teacher. You can almost <clears throat> put your shoulders up on that one. Tell me, teacher. What do you got to say? Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. For lack of a, you know, sort of comparison, figure 5 million bucks. Big amount of money. I'm sure that there's a different sum that is the actual connection. Figure just a lot of money. 500 denarii. And there's another person who owed him 50. And I know the math doesn't work, but figure like, you know, 500 bucks. A whole lot less money. A much more manageable sum. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon's listening closely, because this is a question, and if you're surrounded by people, you want to get that question right, huh? I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. You need to see Simon go, ha, I got it right. Check mark for me, gold star. Look at me, folks. But Jesus isn't done. Then he turned toward the woman. I almost see him reclining. Puts his arm up behind him. So that Simon, who's there, can see the woman as well. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Customary hospitality, custom and tradition. But he didn't do it. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume 
on my feet. Perfume's expensive, by the way. Costs a lot of money. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now as we sort of get this picture of the story and we see how this whole sort of situation looked, we can see that the Pharisee is concerned. And yes, he is concerned about his reputation, but there's a little bit more going on than that. He's actually has a concern for something that is actually a good thing. He has a concern for the law of God here. Believe it or not, that's actually at play. Why? Because as a good Pharisee, he knows that you need to be one thing in order to be able to enter temple worship. And that one thing that you needed to be in order to go to the temple and do what Pharisees do is be clean. If you are not ceremonially clean, if you have not observed the laws of cleanliness, then you going to the temple, it becomes prohibitive. You're not allowed into the temple unless you are ceremonially clean. How do you get ceremonially unclean? By doing things like touching people who are sick. If you touched a dead body, if you touched an unclean animal, or if you touched a sinner. If you touched sinners, you were unclean. So by the very nature of the activity of our text, Jesus has been made, because she touched his feet, ceremonially unclean. The Pharisee is in essence saying, I need to go to the temple because I'm a Pharisee, and I don't want to mess that up. That's my standing. That's my reputation. If I'm unclean, I can't fulfill my reputation. I need to get this woman out of my house. Get her away from me. But in that, reminding, being reminded of the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament, the Pharisee completely forgot about the rest of the law of God. The rest of the law of God that talks about hospitality, about caring for the poor, about being open to people being in your homes, sharing at your table with those in need. And this woman was certainly in need. But the Pharisee forgot all about that. He was so governed by one thing that he missed out on everything else that God had for him. And that one thing is a concern about the law, but ultimately a concern about reputation. In forgetting the rest of the law of God, the Pharisee was willing to risk his obedience to God for the sake of his reputation before others. He was called to love God and others more, but he couldn't do it. I'm not going to engage in any sort of relationship with that woman. What will people, what's the word? Think. What will they think of me? I'm a Pharisee. She's a sinful woman. No way. We can do that in our lives, can't we? We can be governed by that sort of thing 
too, really quickly. We want to be considered good by others. We, want, we don't want people to look at us and say, boy, those Penningtons, they're bad people. We don't want anyone to say that. Yeah, I know, you're not a Pennington, so you can put your hands up. We don't want anyone to say that. We want someone to look at the Penningtons and say, boy, those Pennington, they're good folks. We want that sort of thing. But the problem is if we are governed by the need to be considered good, we can miss out on what it means to be obedient and to be loving. If we want people to look at us and they are governed by good, we are governed by their definition of good. We are governed by how they see good, how they think about what good is. And if we step outside of someone's definition of what good is, then we're not good. We're maybe a little crazy, maybe a little nuts, maybe a little radical. All these sorts of things that can make us not look good anymore. And barriers to this sort of idea, barriers for, for us thinking about this, they can be things like our history with others. Oh, people, I've known that person for 50 years. They've never act like, they would never act like that. They would never think like, they would never say that. I've known them forever. Or we might think that those people that I've known for 20 years, what will they think if I do this thing that I know God is calling me to? But it's outside of the normal. It's outside of what usually happens. It's outside of my reputation. What about things like traditions? Now, I grew up in a church where there were a number of traditions. We used to, as kids, and it was one of my least favorite things, and I know that you kids out there, you know, you're, you put your fist up if you're one with this. On Sunday, what do you got to do? You got to dress up, right? You got to put on the good clothes, the nice pants. You got to put on the nice shirt, the one that got washed that week, right, Trevor? You got clean clothes on, don't you, Trevor? Unlike every other day of the week. Because that's, you're, you're supposed to come to church wearing your what? Sunday best, right? Nice dresses. Guys used to wear suits and ties. And I got to tell you, God be praised. I've told you before, I wear slacks. I wear uh, a nice shirt because I don't want to be a stumble. I, I, I would wear flip-flops and jeans up here, folks. Those of you who see me the rest of the week, you know that's how I, how I roll. That's what I do. But I do this for you. You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> But I give God great praise that we are a community where you can come in here in shorts, flip-flops, and t-shirts. I give God praise that this is a community where we don't look on you because of what you're wearing and have attitudes about you. Well, we may, but I think we're working against that. There are people in this community who might think those things, but we're working against that. You are welcome here. But the tradition was that that... You got Sunday best on. It got even worse than that. Do you remember, some of you, on Saturday afternoon, what did you have to do before you went to church? You want to see see if I hear it? Wash the car. Not kidding. Anybody remember that? 
You had to wash the car before you came to church on Sunday. Figure that out. Does your car come in church? Is it raising its hands? I don't think so. But it's got to be clean as it's out there in that parking lot. Otherwise, people are going to look at you and go, what's going on there? By the way, my, my car, I'm fairly certain, has not been washed in the last decade. So obviously, I don't care about my reputation. But seriously, that used to be the way things were. You had to come with a certain standing, a certain... Families had to be together. If you were fighting in the car, as soon as you pulled into the parking lot, you shut it down and paste that smile on. That's how it went. You can't come in here with your problems, your challenges, your brokenness. It's not welcome. You got to put on the reputation, put on the facade, put on the airs. Things like discomfort can be a barrier. It's hard to do some things. What if... What if in your nice, clean car, you know that God is calling you to give a ride to somebody who is stinky and smelly and dirty, even if it's for 10 minutes? It's uncomfortable to say, oh, come on in. It can be uncomfortable for some people to do things like try new things, meet new people, have new experiences. It's uncomfortable because it's outside of our comfort zone, right? And so we need to be challenged in these things. And as we're challenged, certainly we can grow. But that first step... It's awfully hard. We can have the fear of the unknown. What will happen? What will happen? Will God mess my life up? Will God mess my life up sending me to Ireland? Will God change something around me and all of a sudden I won't know who I am or what I'm doing anymore? We can have this fear, this barrier in front of us that stops us. One big one, though, is this. We get scared of what will people think? What will people think? What will people think if I, if I do what God actually called me to do? What will people think if I actually live in full obedience to Scripture? What will people think if I change my lifestyle to reflect a lifestyle of servitude, of generosity, of giving to others as they have need? And I am not concerned any longer with so many things that have governed my values and the things I bought and the things that I spent time with in the past. What will people really think of me if I live into Loving the Lord, my God, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. The first and greatest command. What will people really think if my life becomes different? When our reputation is sacred, our love for Christ dramatically shrinks. When we're worried about the, and I can't believe I'm saying this, horizontal, people around us, people, humanity, the world, when we are worried about that and not worried about the vertical, our relationship with God, if that governs us instead of this, we miss a whole lot of life. I think about that when I think about Lagonia. Now, for those of you who don't know, Lagonia School over on the north side of town is a school that we love and are engaged deeply in in ministry. But think about this, okay? We are a church. We are a church in the state of California, arguably one of the most liberal states in the country. When it comes to education, also a very liberal state. 
And it makes very clear that separation of church and state in the public schools has to be very clearly delineated, hands off in many ways. So when I have had conversations with various people at different times around this country or even around this state, pastors and leaders in other communities, about what God has opened up for us at Algonia, you know what they say? They say things like, is that even possible? They say things like, are you crazy? You could get yourself in trouble. Like, what happens if someone gets offended by a religious organization being on campus and files a lawsuit? Do you want your name of your church in the papers? Those sorts of things maybe are possible. I don't know. People who are smarter than I would have to figure that out. But what I do know is that for some, the idea of a church loving a public school, we love, we love a number of schools. Our Christian local, local Christian schools, certainly we care deeply about those and are engaged in ministry in those, but also our public schools. For us to love that, Love that school and engage certainly is something that for many faith communities is uncomfortable. But here's the thing. And, and if you don't know the story of how that happened, it's a beautiful story. One person in our church, Ginger Mulder, just had a relationship that got built with a principal over at Lagunia School over a number of years through a ministry called Bless Redlands. Once a year, we would get together and paint curbs at public schools and clean up trash and do various things. Well, through that few years of engaging in relationship with the principal there at Lagonia School, God opened up a door, moved us, and moved the school into a place where we could increase the conversation. And then they had a librarian who was going on medical leave, and for, we just asked them at that time. It was like so beautiful how God did it. We said, hey, um, we'd like to serve you. We love your kids. We love your school. What is it that we could do to serve you? And they said to us, well, we got a librarian going on medical leave. Think you can help? Yeah, we can help. As a result of that, we now, four days a week at least, have that library staffed by volunteers for at least an hour a day, just putting books onto the shelves and helping students find the books they need. God moved us. But then it kept going. Because all of a sudden, we've got Nick Intop our associate pastor here, being a crazy man on campus doing an intramural program where kids flock to him like flies to honey and they hang out and they play kickball and wiffle ball and different sports and soccer and they now have an intramural program which they never did before through Nick and a whole group of volunteers who help out. God moved and God worked. But more than that, there's a crochet club that has met at different times. There's an art club that has met at different times. There's a chess club that has met at different times. There's a music club that, I've met, that has met at different times. There are playground volunteers on a weekly basis. There are, <clears throat> excuse me, readers in the classroom now on a weekly basis. And I can tell you, that when my wife comes home on Friday afternoon, she tells me little stories about kids that she's interact with, be, interacted with because she cares about them. And she, she, she loves them. She gets to know them. And we've seen them on other sports fields at various times and relationships have been built. We've prayed for administrators and teachers over there as they've gone through sickness. They have prayed for us as we've gone through various challenges, if we don't go into the uncomfortable, scary world of not worrying about where anyone else thinks, we miss all that. 
We miss all of it. We, we miss out on this beautiful thing that God continues to grow and foster in beautiful ways. If we didn't and weren't willing to take the step, focusing on what God has for us, we would miss out on this huge blessing. What else are we missing out on? What else is uncomfortable outside of the norm? Something that is challenging. Something that might make people look at us a little differently. What else are we missing out on? Because we're not willing to focus on what God is calling us. We're too much worried about what's going on around us. As we look again at this story, we see that reputation was important for the woman too. She was governed by reputation as well. But it wasn't a reputation to the people around her. It was a reputation before God. See, this was a woman. Again, we don't know the specifics of her sin. We don't know what happened. Uh, we can make some assumptions. We might wonder. But we're not, we don't know for sure. But because she knew her standing before the whole town, she knew how this Pharisee saw her. She knew how everyone saw her. She probably heard the comments on a daily basis, the sneers. She saw the looks of disgust. She saw the backs turn. She saw the sort of looks on people's faces as she went by. She knew how she stood before everyone else. It didn't concern her. She just knew at this table reclining on the ground with dirty feet was mercy. Here was mercy and grace and love in the flesh. Here was Jesus. And she was so desperate for that mercy that she was willing to look foolish and crazy. You can imagine as soon as she fell on her knees at the feet of Jesus with tears streaming down her face, putting her tears over Jesus' feet and then taking her hair. Can you imagine the gasps of people as she took her long hair and put it over the feet of Jesus and began to wipe his feet? And she didn't care. Fine, I'll look foolish. I'll look crazy because I don't care about this. Because this, this is beautiful. This is everything that I could have ever wanted or ever needed. This is love. This is grace. This is forgiveness. And I will do whatever, ever, ever I can do for him. If it means dirty hair, if it means stinky hands, if it means a tear-stained face, I will do it because he took my $5 million debt and put on there paid in full. She knew God's grace and that was the only fuel for her behavior. She knew how much of a mess she was without Jesus and since he was there and she could engage with him in some way, shape, or form, she was saying, I will serve you. I will give myself to you completely. I am yours. Her breakthrough came in realizing her glaring need for God's love and living into that need. Because she knew just how much she needed grace in her own life because of her own sin, she was willing to say, I don't care about anything else, only you. Jesus Christ, only you, God of mercy, only you, Holy Spirit of love. Now, as we think about her example for our own lives, we can think this way. 
if we need God's grace. You notice my little play there? If. How many of you need God's grace? I'll put your hands up. Just put them up. Yeah. You, you're desperate for it. You're, because you know, you know how this morning has gone. If you have children, you've sinned this morning, right? If you have children, you are getting ready for church. You have sinned this morning. Why? Because little, little Trevor, Trevor was a handful today. And he is, oh man. And so mom and dad are whoever, making me crazy. We need to go worship Jesus. Come on. If you are married, you have probably sinned today. You've had a thought or a, a thing that went through your brain. If you drove on the freeway this morning, you certainly sinned this morning. I know that for me. If I go on the freeway, I'm like a sin factory with all the things that I think about people driving around me who have no idea how to drive. We know even today, we owe God $10 million of sin. Our debt has already rung up today. And today's a good day. It's Sunday. What about the rest of the week? Our bill before God is 500 denarii times a 500 denarii times 500 denarii. Keep going and keep going and keep going. We are desperately in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. We're in the exact same spot as the woman. Where's our tears? Where's our perfume? You ready to put your hair onto dirty feet? Or what would people think? Because if we live like the Pharisee, we're basically acting like we owe Jesus 50 bucks. Here you go, Jesus. I'll take care of that. Put it on my car debt paid in full because I can depend on myself. I'm capable. That's my reputation. I can do it. If we don't live in that desperation for God's grace, we are not only living into foolishness and disobedience because we desperately need that grace, but we are missing out on so much. Think about this. This is a woman. We don't know her name. We know she's sinful. We know she's broken. We know she's a mess. And there were probably plenty of other righteous people at that table with the rest of the Pharisees. But we never hear word boo about them. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the beauty of a woman who in her own need for mercy cries at the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her own hair. God does something with people who are willing to give their all to him, who don't care about the world around them and what it thinks, but only what he thinks. God does incredible things that change the world because we're not scared. We're not scared what anyone else is going to think about us. We're excited to be thankful before the Lord God for what he has done for us. When we look at the full scope of the text of Scripture, hear me here. Being a Christian is radical. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means you will serve the poor. 
Doesn't matter how much you have, it means you will serve the poor and not just serve them, you know, with a, a mindless check, an unfeeling check. You will serve them in love. That you will love your enemies and pray for them. That you will give up everything that you have. It's all God's. You will give it all up in order to serve him. It means that you put your spouse before yourself in all that you do. It means that you look to the needs of others before you look to your own needs. If you don't think that is a radical notion, go out into this world and try to live it and see how people see you. Being a Christian is radical. It's a crazy, crazy life. But it is an obedient life, and it's exactly how Christ lived. He didn't care for his own needs. He didn't care what everyone else thought about him. He didn't care that the Pharisees thought he was one of them and that he should join them. He should be like them. He didn't care about that. I will be about my father's business. I will do what it is that my father calls. Not my will, not your will, not anyone else's will, but yours alone, O oh Lord. As we live into that, there is beauty and power and an extraordinary work of God that happens next. I see that in our community as people live into this. Some of you know the story of the Winslows recently in the last several weeks. They wanted me to change their names. I asked permission. They wanted me to change their names, so I was willing to call them Trike and Ratty Lose Fast, but we decided that that probably wasn't going to work. Lose Fast, you sort of get it, Winslows. Take a minute and you'll catch up. So um, you, if you don't know the story of the Winslows, the Winslows um, have taken, uh, they've gone through the process of safe families. And it was about three weeks ago that they got the call from um, safe families. We have three boys, kindergarten, first grade, fourth grade. Um, and they need a place to stay. We're not sure for how long. There's crisis in the home. Can you help? Yeah, we can help. So three boys come into their home. They find out on, I think, Wednesday, Thursday, the kids are in the home. And um, if you called Patty or Mike during those eight days, I think nine days, that they had the kids in their home, here's what the conversation usually went like, because I had several conversations with Mike and Patty. If they were talking with you while they were at the boys, it went like this. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good, good Scott. Kenneth? Kenneth, get down from there. Kenneth, you need to go sit on the couch. Kenneth, no, sit down. You can't do that. Okay, so yeah, here's what's going on with it. Kieran, you need to get out of the pantry. Stop eating. We're going to have dinner in a little while. Just calm down. It was like that constantly during, because they were busy boys, lots of energy. For the first, like, was it five days they ate everything that you had? I think they, they hadn't been fed. They hadn't had a lot of food, so they were so hungry. They consumed their, we had them for, for two sets of two hours in our home, and they were seriously like raiding the pantry as much as they possibly could. Not only that, but there was a whole lot of other stuff. They brought not just physical needs, but emotional needs. There was hurt and pain in their life. There was challenges. They, they didn't know what it is that they were expected to do in a home. They had to learn, and that learning was hard. But the Winslows welcomed, and the beautiful part is they ended up getting be to, able to spend, I think, six days at Redlands Christian. 
And at Redlands Christian, a lot of people from that community, and including people from our community, got to love on those kids. Laura Witt loved on those kids. Other teachers loved on those kids. Kids from our church loved on those kids. They were, for nine days, our kids that we cared about in this community. And unfortunately, they're gone now. They went to be with mom in Texas. They, we don't know how that story goes. We probably won't know how that story goes. We don't know much of the story beforehand. But here's what we do know. For nine days, three boys experienced the love of Christ. For nine days, three boys came to church two, three times over the course of that time. And they got to be a part of a community that teaches the grace and love of Jesus Christ. They, they, they for nine days got to have people who prayed for them and cared for them and loved them. And if you don't know, I mean, the Winslows had so much going on. I I think the name of Savannah's tropical disease that she got in Philippines is called humu humu nuku nuku apa ah ah, something crazy like that. I know that's a Hawaiian fish, but it sounds like that. She got a tropical disease flare up while these boys were in her home. So while the boys are in the home, their parents are over shuttling to Loma Linda to try to figure out whether or not Savannah's going to be okay. God be praised she is, we think figuring it all out, but things are okay. God is good. But in the midst of that, now, I don't know about you, but I I had those kids for two sets of four hours. I didn't. Me and Kristen did. So Kristen did. I was just there sometimes. But they were in our home for four hours. And you know what I thought about the Winslows? You people are nuts. (laughs) You are nuts. You're crazy. You're, who does this? What white folks bring three African-American children who know poverty and brokenness and have emotional pain in their life bring three boys? Who does that? You people are crazy. And if they worried about what I or anybody else thought of them, how much of the blessing of three boys hearing the love of Jesus would have been missed. At the end of the day, folks, there are crazy things out there. And I know the Winslows are still wondering, I don't know we want to do this again. That was hard. That was challenging. But within that, there was blessing. What does God have for you? If you're not worried about what I think of you or what your neighbor thinks of you or the people around you think of you, but you are worried instead about what God has for you, what he's calling you and preparing you for, and he's saying, please, out of gratitude, I have forgiven your debt of $5 million, wiped it clean. Are you worried about what I'm thinking and what I want for you? And we say, oh, hold on. There's people over here. What will they think of me? They, they haven't given me anything. They haven't forgiven anything. But I'm going to be more worried. Let's live. Let's live into the truth that God has given us everything through the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And he simply says to us, what I have given unto you, your life, give it back unto me. And I will bless it and multiply it in ways that you can never even dream of or imagine. As we respond and think about going deeper this morning, 
There's some things for you there. There's a couple of verses of Scripture to memorize. This is Jesus' speech to this Pharisee, Simon, in that he is telling them and reminding him what gratitude looks like. He's reminding him of what thankfulness is. For you and I to be reminded of that is good work. Put that in your head and live into that. And then discuss this statement. One place that my fear of losing my reputation stops me from following Christ is, and maybe it's I don't want other people to see me differently than they do. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. That would be uncomfortable. That would be scary. That would be go, go against things that I've always done and the ways I've always done them. What is it that is a barrier to you obeying Christ? And finally, do something radical. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. And Terry's going to lead you in that. Raise your hands. You're not a hand raiser. I get it. I understand. But... Maybe God has something for, if he's calling you to raise your hands and you don't, you're missing out. Hear me? You're missing out. Live into that obedience. Other things you can do. Write a psalm or a song or a poem of praise and post it on Facebook where we're so concerned about reputation, right? Post it on Facebook and say, this is my song of praise to God. This is me worrying about giving him glory and worshiping him. Talk to someone that you wouldn't normally talk to. One of my big frustrations is when I talk to people who come visit the church is that people don't talk to them after church. We get in our frozen, chosen little circles that we've had for the last 25 years and don't meet new people. And you may say, well, I don't know who the new people are. I don't, I've only been here for a little while myself. Then fine out. If you think, if you don't know somebody, they're a new person, at least to you, go talk to them. Meet them. Have a conversation. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's a risk. Yes, they may look at you and wonder about your sanity. People do that to me all the time. It's fine. (laughs) Go do something radical in your own life. Maybe it's things like try out for a play. Maybe there's a hands of mercy trip. They're out here in a little while. Maybe it's going down and building a loft house in Mexico with hands of mercy or an MCACA trip, Mexican Christian Children's um, Association or whatever they're called, that group that goes down to Mexico bringing tons of food to orphanages. Maybe it's going to seminary. I don't know what it is. But you will, if you're seeking obedience to Christ and you're willing to listen to his calling, you will discover what being a radical for Jesus is all about. To that end, let me pray for you. Living God, it's a scary statement to say, but make us radicals for grace. Make us radicals for love in this world. Make us radicals for gratitude to Jesus Christ for what you have done to us. You have forgiven us everything. You have given us life and a purpose. You've given us community. You've given us hope. You've given us every good thing. Lord, may we live in response to that and not have fear in a world that has given us so little, that has given us only expectations that has given us judgment on how we live and what we do, that has given us 
dreams that can't be achieved or given us things that we think we should attain to or get or buy in order to be happy. The world has given us that and we've said that that's enough oftentimes. Lord, may we reject, turn away from the world and live into gratitude for what you have done. You've given us everything and may we live and give back to you everything. In Christ we pray, amen.